0: In the name of the Father, and the Son, and God's Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. Have you ever thought about your name, what you like about it, or don't like about it? Have you ever thought about the power that it has over you, or in you? If you could change your name, what would that change about you? The Bible puts a lot of stock in the power of names. And some of the most significant stories in all of the scripture have to do with who got what name. So you remember in the beginning, the first human beings get names. They're not much of names as names go. Uh, Adam, or Adam in Hebrew, literally means human being. (laughs) And Eve literally means, all living things. So the story of Adam and Eve is the story of every woman and every man, of you and me. And of course Adam gets this sort of peculiar honor from God. He gets to name all of the creatures on the earth. And so you get this wonderful image that comes to mind of Adam sort of sitting there And watching this parade of creatures before him, four-legged split hoof, let's call it equus cabalis, horse. And then this other creature comes floating by, and he says, wings, creature, how beautiful. Call it lepidatera, butterfly. And then... Slithering along the ground comes this other creature, and he says, oh, that looks familiar. My wife has told me about this one. Let's call it the Periday, serpent. Names. You remember Jacob in Genesis. Jacob uh, falls asleep by the river Jabbok, and he has this dream. Uh, He's wrestling with an angel of God, and, of course, the God, God wins the championship belt, but Jacob does so well that he is given a new name. No longer will, be, will he be Jacob the deceiver. He will now be called Israel. This is where we get our name. Israel means he or she who wrestles with God. That's quite a name for the people of God. So in biblical terms, a name captures something of the essence or the personality of the one to whom it is given. And a name can still be a very powerful thing today. I remember years ago now taking a group of young people on a a summer mission trip to Washington, D.C. and the director of the shelter uh, there was, was telling the young people, you have to remember to use the name of the man who you are working with. You should use it often, he said, because they almost never get to hear their names said. And for some of them, it is the only thing that they have left. I know one of the things that bugs me about this place is how hard it is to get some of you to wear your name tags. (laughs) Some of you say to me on a regular basis, I'm not good with names. I don't care. This is the church. At least here we should remember that God calls each of us by name, which brings me in a sort of circuitous manner to our lesson for today (laughs) and the baptism of Jesus. Because it's a story about a name, a name we all know, and an event that we all should remember because it is also the story of how we got a name. It is the story about who remembers our name. So Jesus comes up from the waters of baptism. And Matthew says something quite remarkable happened. In in Matthew's words, suddenly the heavens were opened. He saw the Spirit of God descending on him like a dove and a voice. This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. In baptism, Jesus gets a name. He gets an identity. He gets a, a calling if you will. And since then, we have given a name and we have welcomed into the family every soul who is touched by water. In baptism, you and I get a name and we get a calling to be the person God intended you, me to be. And it may be one of the most difficult things that any of us face in our lives. I have to confess, there are a number of things that, uh, that the eccentric poet E.E. E. Cummings wrote that I will probably never understand. But there is one little thing he wrote, it's called, who am I, that has always resonated with me. You'll remember these words. To be nobody but yourself in a world that is doing its best night and day to make you into everybody else means to fight the hardest battle any human being can fight and never stop fighting. And I think Cummings put his finger on something that is absolutely universal in those words. I remember my old mentor, John Claypool, um, talking about how um, he spent a good deal of his life sort of fighting against the stereotype that his family had of who he should be. His father apparently had always wanted to be a doctor, but the family finances really didn't allow for that. And so those expectations then got laid on John, the oldest son. John says he remembers um, people would always call him uh, our our little family doctor. Uh, at Christmas or at birthdays, there was always a little medical kit that was included somewhere in the, in the presents. But then he said somewhere along the line in college, a different voice began to rise up within him. He, uh, he first of all realized that he didn't have a whole lot of manual dexterity. And that concerned him because, of course, doctors used their hands. And then he began to realize that his natural inclination... Um, the courses that he was most interested in were not actually chemistry or biology. They were more like philosophy or English or history. He could do these others, but they just weren't him. And so at one point, he said, looking back, I had a great sense of satisfaction that I had the courage to come home to who I really am. However, that did not take away from the disappointment felt in his whole family or the sad look, he said, in his father's eye. To be nobody but yourself in a world that is trying its best to make you somebody else and to be comfortable and satisfied with who you are. Back in seminary, I remember a little book that really impressed me. It was called A Diary of private prayer. It was by a a guy by the name, a Scottish guy by the name of John Bailey. And um, John was a good theologian um, in his own right, Um, but apparently he had always been overshadowed by his younger brother, D.M. Bailey. So in academic circles, D.M. always got the recognition. Uh, When a new principal was selected at a college in Edinburgh, DM, not John. And knowing that helped me to understand one of the little prayers in this wonderful little book. John wrote, O Lord, help me to accept the fact that you have called me to a small work and my brother to a great work. Let me be content with the place prepared for me from the foundations of the earth. To remember your baptism, which is what we are doing today, is to recall, first of all, that God has called you to be all that you can and to be satisfied with what God has called you to be. You are my beloved daughter, son, with whom I am well pleased. So in baptism, we remember who we are. We also remember whose we are. So in the baptism liturgy that we use quite regularly around here are these words. By baptism, God puts his sign upon you to show that you belong to him. Those are powerful words. Which, for example, remind every parent that This is not just my child. In baptism, parents make promises, as do we as a congregation, to help nurture that child as they grow up. But there is also an acknowledgement in baptism that there is so much that we cannot do, that only God can do. So there is only so much self esteem that we can impart, there is only so much wisdom that we can share. There is only so much um, safety that we can provide. And no matter how earnestly we desire things for our little one, that God will do in their lives what God will do. So ironically, in baptism, while there is this welcoming and this holding close, there is also something of a letting go of our loved ones to the one who loves them even more than we do. The one who loves each of us in that way. Back in um, 1976, America's bicentennial year, uh, one very creative writer came up with an intriguing idea. Our nation is 200 years old, he thought. I bet I can find someone who is alive today who is old enough that when they were a child, they remember someone who was then old enough to have been alive at the founding of our nation. In other words, a living link to the beginning of our country. And sure enough, he found such a person. He was a Kentucky farmer by the name of Burnham Ledford. And he was over a hundred years old in 1976. And he remembered that when he was a little boy, he was taken in a wagon to see his great-great-grandmother, who was then 100 years old herself, and who was just a little girl when George Washington was inaugurated as the first American president. So when this writer asked Burnham what he remembered, he said he remembered being taken into his great-great-grandmother's house. She was feeble and blind. She was sitting in an old chair in a corner of a dark bedroom. "'We brought Burnham to see you,' his father said. And the old woman turned towards that sound, reached out her long bony fingers, and said in an ancient cracking voice, "'Bring him here!' They had to push me towards her, Burnham remembered. I was scared to death. But when I got close to her, she reached out her hands and began to stroke my face. She felt my eyes and my nose. She felt my mouth and my chin. And then all at once, she seemed satisfied. She pulled me close to her and held me tight. This boy's a Ledford, she said. I can feel it. I know this boy. He's one of us. And even so, in baptism, you and I get not just a name, we get a family. It is not unusual today to hear people say something like this. I can pray by myself. And I could read the Bible by myself. I don't need all those other people. I don't need the church, to which I frequently respond. And by the way, will you read that Bible (laughs) by yourself? And by the way, when you read that Bible, what will you make of the fact that the Bible unquestionably says that Christianity is inherently communal? There is no such thing as a self-made Christian. In the Bible, the church is as much a part of God's plan as was God sending Jesus into the world. It is a call to a shared life. It is a communal faith. And again, that is one of the highest and the most difficult of all callings. Because in case you hadn't noticed it, community does not come easily to us in our society today. It goes against the grain of our self-actualized, I-just-want-my-rights society. And even more so because, as I sometimes say to new folks who come to our congregation, we are anything but a perfect family. (laughs) We, too, have our oddball uncles and cousins just like any family does. I won't mention names. (laughs) Kathleen Norris, in her book Amazing Grace, does a great job of describing the nature of us as a family. She writes, I have only to look at the congregation I know best, the one I belong to. We are not individuals who come together because we are like-minded. That is not a church. That is a political party. We are like most healthy churches, I think, in that we do pretty well in serving God and each other and the world, but God help us if we have to agree about things. I could test our uniformity any Sunday, she says, by suggesting a major remodeling of the sanctuary, or even worse, the Holy of Holies, the church kitchen. But, she concludes, I value my life too much. (laughs) Henry Nouwen was a wonderful Catholic priest. He was originally from Holland. And uh, over the years Henry used to fly a great deal by airplane. He said that one of the things that was kind of disappointing to him when he arrived at an airport was that there were always these people who were anxiously awaiting the arrival of someone else. They would be straining on tiptoe. They would be leaning this way and that way um, to get a look at that special person who would be stepping off the plane, maybe right behind him. And they would hug, and they would kiss, and they would talk about how was the trip, and how are things going, and all of that. But it was never for him, because he was always on a way to a meeting, or to give a lecture, or to go to a conference, and all he had was instructions about how to get to the shuttle or where you could find the taxis. So Henry said that his idea of heaven would be that when he arrived, God would be waiting for him, straining on tiptoe, and leaning this way and that to see him stepping off the plane. And God would run up to him and give him a big hug. And then that voice that spoke the universe into being would call him by name. Welcome home, Henry, he would say. Show me your pictures. (laughs) Out of the River Jordan one day, Jesus came up. And it was as though the heavens opened, and there was this voice. You are my beloved. With you, I am well pleased. And ever since then, in baptisms much more modest, we have gotten a name. And we have entered into a family and celebrated the love of one who one day will be watching for us Standing on tiptoe, leaning this way and that. And won't it be something? Won't it be to feel those arms around you and to hear in that voice the name that is your own?